When I was in college and in seminary, I had the privilege of learning some Greek. And uh, I remember that uh, there was a saying that the Greek professors had that was a cautionary saying, and it was this, uh, a little Greek can do a lot of damage. And the idea there was, you know, a first-year student in Greek can finish that first year and do their all, all their luos, luais, luain, all their luos, which are Greek words, uh, and, and feel like, aha, I've conquered it, I know Greek, and now jump into their studies and commentaries in the Greek languages and think that they're masters, but they're not. And they can come to certain conclusions about Greek words that are far from the truth, and this can happen sometimes. Uh, anyone here have a Strong's Concordance? or had one, <laughs> you probably have it on your computer, you can go on the internet. Sometimes we go through a passage and it's like, oh, let me look at Strong's and see what it says in the Greek. And you have this word in the Greek and there's probably, you know, 10 different definitions of this word. And so you tend, oh, okay, there's one I like there, I'll choose that one. And it's like, no, it takes a little bit more than that to actually understand what the best word is to be used in that context. So a little Greek can definitely do a lot of damage. And I would say 20 years later, or more since uh, uh, that time, uh, I would definitely agree with that assessment. I've uh, kind of seen it in myself, I've seen it in others. Um, so, but I must admit, I do know a little Greek and I do know a little Hebrew. Um, the little Greek makes some great souvlaki sandwiches and the little Hebrew um, is a good tailor of my clothes. All right, that's a joke, I had to put it in there, you know. But um, you know what, uh, if you're still wrestling with that one, get there, okay? Um, but the, the reality is, um, when we are confused about something, when we are in the fog about what is being taught, uh, if we are totally lost in, a, in an argument, um, and someone asks us, so what do you think? Uh, we would likely respond by saying something like this, I don't know what, it's Greek to me, right? But, I mean, there's this idea of, of this, this Greekness being a, a, a question, and I don't exactly know what's happening here. And some of you who are Greek, please do not be offended. I'm not trying to personify you at all. Um, but it's part of our colloquial language here uh, to talk about, you know, if I don't know something, it is, it is Greek to me. But to this passage, you will notice that Jesus is now speaking to some Greeks, now, in the Gospel of John, this is very, very significant. In fact, we touched on it last week a little bit because what the Pharisees were saying is that the whole world has come out to see Jesus. That was the first statement there that kind of went broader than Jerusalem. And the very next story that, that John brings up in the account here is this encounter that Jesus has with these Greeks. In other words, it's opening up the window a little bit here that what Jesus has done and the purpose of Jesus in his coming is not limited to Israel. It's not limited to those who are in Jerusalem, the part of the, the covenant Israel. It, it is broader than that. It is to the Gentile. It is to the Greeks. Now notice verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks now, we don't know exactly who they are, because um, we're not told in this passage, but more than likely, um, they were God-fearing Greeks who had been attracted by the simplicity and the credibility and the theology of Judaism. Now, 
what I mean by that is this, that Judaism uh, worships one God. The Greeks worshipped what? Many gods. And the morality among the Greek gods isn't exactly wonderful to look at. It varies. It changes. A Greek god or goddess can get angry with each other, and then there's chaos. There's something about God of the Israelites that is stable, that is consistent, that is a covenant relationship with his people, and he has established a code of ethics called the law, and these are God-fearing, not necessarily um, regenerate, but God-fearing, God-honoring in that sense, uh, Greeks who are coming. Very, very likely they fit into that, that group of people. Now, verse 21, so these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Again, interesting, Philip, Andrew, why Philip and Andrew? Probably because they're Greek names. Uh, we don't know exactly, we're not told, but it's interesting here, they went to Philip, and then Philip goes to Andrew, and then Andrew brings them to Jesus, and just a little side note here, almost every time you see Andrew, what's he doing? He's bringing someone to Jesus, right? Something about his character that he has kind of no hesitancy with bringing someone who is interested to talk to Jesus, and so that's what we have here. They say here, we wish to see Jesus. Now, it's not that they want to see Jesus. Oh, look, there he is. That's not the idea here. They want to come and have a serious, in-depth conversation with Jesus. They have questions that they want answered. They want to know, who is this king of glory? Who is this Messiah? We sang a song about that. Maybe it was a new song to you. But it was a song that asked these same questions. And the answer to that question was, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. But they're coming asking these right questions. Now, we're not, we're not given a response here by Jesus that we can say specifically is directed at the Greeks because we don't have any more interaction and Jesus doesn't, he doesn't address the Greeks, but it certainly is after this question. So the conclusion we come to is this. Because of their being captivated by what something that Jesus said or something that Jesus has done, remember the context here, he's just made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He went out again, now he's back in Jerusalem and the crowds are there, they're hearing uh, about what's going on. There's a reputation about Jesus. There's this tension going on because the religious establishment is trying to arrest Jesus and kill him. Now they're coming. They ask a question. They saw something that was important, and they want further insight into what's going on. And so Jesus then responds to these questions in three ways, and I've divided it basically this way, and these are your main headings if you want to just jump them down. We'll see here three responses that Jesus has to, to the, the question or this this request by the Greeks. Number one, uh, he responds by, by showing us the hour of glorification. The hour of glorification. All right. Secondly, this, the voice of confirmation. So there's this hour where Jesus is going to be glorified. There's a voice that comes to confirm that that is true. And then there's this light of transformation, which is basically saying, based on those two things, here is how you should respond to this. And remember the whole book of John is really hooked to this theme that is found in chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, where evidence leads to belief, which leads to 
life. And we see here in the first two, there is evidence. This is who Jesus is. All right? And in the last one, now here's what you need to do. Believe, and the end result is going to be life. And we'll see that flowing out here. Interesting how that theme just flows together. So let's just pause right now and let's ask the Lord to help us as we uh, seek to unpack this passage. Lord, uh, we are always amazed at how you uh, challenge us through your word. Lord, how you have revealed yourself through the pen of John. Lord, we know that he's writing as a man recording and, and, and arguing the case for who you are. And yet, Lord, behind him is a sovereign hand that is at work also. And Lord, we know that this gospel is inspired. Lord, it is, it is breathed out by you through personality, through John, for our benefit. So Lord, today we ask that your Holy Spirit would continue to be at work, not only through the preaching of your word, but Lord, also through the listening of those who are part uh, of, of our gathering here this morning. Would you have your way? Would you mold us and shape us? Would you fashion us? Lord, for those who are still struggling to believe, I ask, Lord, that the evidence would continue to mount, that there would be a challenge in their heart, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would be squeezing with conviction, and Lord, that we would see life and abundant life and joyful life, Lord, live for your glory as a result of this, we ask in your holy name. Amen. Now, let's look, first of all, at the hour of glorification. And we notice the question um, is this, what does it mean that Jesus, the Son of Man, will be glorified? We're told here, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. What does it mean for him to be glorified? Well, in a nutshell, um, it's talking about Jesus' death. His glorification is ultimately pointing to the fact that Jesus is going to die. It is through Jesus' death that the Father's glory or his attributes or his essence is on display for all to see. So Jesus, in a sense, in his death is a window, is a lens through which the glory of the Father will be brought into focus. What is Jesus come to do? What is the Godhead desired to do? What is the purpose of the Father? And ultimately we know it's for the Son to go to the cross. Well, why would the Son go to the cross? He would go to the cross because there is a need for an ultimate sacrifice to pay for the sin of the world. Well, why would there be a need for that ultimate sacrifice? Because there's a holy God and there's a sinful people. And there is a reconciliation available, but it only comes through that sacrifice that is Jesus. So in the cross, we see the attributes of God, his wrath, but his patience and his satisfaction and his love and his provision. So many things here, fleshing through or, or, or showering through the cross so that we can see him in all his glory. This is what he's come to do. This is how he fulfills his plan. So this is what, what, uh, forces the, the, uh, what sweeps away the forces of evil and instead of that, we see Jesus entering now with his face set toward Golgotha, knowing uh, that he had to go to a cross, not because somehow he was a puppet in the hands of the Father, but because as God, he knew what he had to be in, that, in being that sacrifice to accomplish the satisfaction of the Father in his wrath against sin. Now, verses 23 through 28 um, reveal for us four aspects of his death. And so there's really 
four kind of ways we want to see his death that they are revealed here. First of all, it is a timely death. The hour, the hour has come. Now, it's interesting, isn't it? If you've been here through the Gospel of John, what have you been reading as we've been going through the Gospel of John? What, what have you been reading about the hour? The hour is what? Not yet come. Different things happen, and we're told, uh-huh, they didn't arrest Jesus, they didn't take him. Why? Because it wasn't his hour, all right? And we, we find that repeated a number of different times. In particular, um, at the wedding, John 2, 24, um, he, he said, I'm not, going to, I'm not going to do this publicly because my hour has not yet come. At the temple, um, no one laid on hands on him because his hour had not yet come. In chapter 8, verse 20, when he's in the treasury there uh, next to the Sanhedrin, when, when, when they're conspiring against him, he is next door teaching, and they try and get him, and... Uh, we're told there that his hour has not yet come, and so they couldn't. And just a reminder that the timing of the Godhead is always and totally, completely in the hand of the Godhead. What man cho chooses to do, what man desires to do, it is always under the uh, releasing hand of God, because God is always in control of what takes place on the earth, and in particular with Jesus. Verse 23, and Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So this hour was timely. It's interesting, in our English language, we use the expression hour um, to describe a number of different things. So Winston Churchill, you may remember that, the great speech that he gave right before England stepped into the battle against Germany, and he says, this is our what? Anyone fill the gap? Our finest hour. And then we use that, that kind of expression of the hour when we're talking about someone being rescued at the 11th hour, right? These are all expressions we use. And so this, this, this word, this idea of hour is describing for us that there has been a time set aside. It hasn't been here. It's not here. It's not here. Here it is. And right now he's saying the hour has come. So there's something significant that is going on here. No force apart from God has ushered this hour into place. No manipulation by the evil one. No plotting of mankind. The hour for the Son of Man to be glorified is totally and completely begun according to the sovereign plan of the Godhead. This is his coronation. He is beginning his march toward the cross. There's a change that is taking place here. He's come for his glorification. It is a timely death. Secondly, it is a fruitful death. Fruitful death. We have this image here of this grain of wheat. It's an image that points to the necessity of death taking place before life can begin. Now, I'm not a, I'm not a guy with a green finger. Um, all I know is that you take, a, you take a seed and you drop it in the ground and water it. Um, in my case, it just dies, right? So... Um, some of you are far better than that, um, but there's something about a seed, and, and just, it boggles your mind when you think about this, but you plant something dead in the ground, that dead seed also has in it some kind of residual life, right? But there's something that has to happen to that seed in order for that, that life to, to actually kind of begin. And we're told here then this, this idea of death is necessary for life to begin. Let's just think about this. First of all, it is a law of nature, verse 24. But tr truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. 
If it dies, it bears much fruit. So this is the law of nature. This is how nature works. And by the way, Jesus is saying truly, truly, which means this is really important. You need to listen to what I'm saying here. There's something about this illustration that is significant for us to understand what Jesus is doing in his death. His death is necessary for life to take place. His death is necessary for fruit to result. He must die. And that will flesh out a little bit more, a little bit later, but just hold on to that. Here's the law of Christ now, verse 25. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So the law of Christ is speaking then to, not only to himself, but to us, to his followers. What does it mean to lose your life? What does it mean to, uh, to hate your life? What does it mean to love your life? What are the effects of that? Then there's the law of the Father, verse 26 and following. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. He must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. You must, and if you do, I am. You must, here's the result. I am there. I am always there. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So the basic law here is this. It's a law that bears fruit. Death is necessary for there to be a fruitful life. Jesus, the Messiah, must die in order for fruit to result. It's part of the plan. It happens in nature. It happens in God's divine gospel plan. It happens in our conversion and our commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ as servants. His death is a fruitful death. It's also a horrible death. Told here, Jesus says here, now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? Well, this word troubled, here's some, some words that are used to describe this word or translate this word, shock, agitation, revulsion, agonizing. John doesn't, in his gospel, give us a picture of Gethsemane. What we have here is a picture of the agony that Jesus is experiencing in his walk to the cross. So he not only suffers on the cross, but Jesus suffers in his journey to the cross. Now, a lot of times we don't think about Jesus' suffering to the cross. We think about him on the cross and then suffering, but taking on, on himself the, the sin of mankind. We get a window of it you know, in Gethsemane because it's right before. And we're like, okay, we get that. But it gives us a window that even when Jesus is entering in to Jerusalem, he still has days yet ahead of him. He is already in agony. In fact, turn to Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7. Hebrews 5, verse 7 reminds us, gives us a little window again as to some of the things that are taking place with Christ here. Hebrews 5, 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with, what does it say? Loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because his, of, of his reverence. So he's crying out to the Father. He's crying out with tears. He's crying out 
to him who is able to save him from death. There's a human side to Jesus here that we see, that he's experiencing this agony to the point that he even goes to the Father in, in, in Gethsemane and says, you know, Lord, this is, this is too much for me to bear. In fact, we have that in Luke chapter 22, verse 44. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down from the ground. The point here that we see is we, we see Jesus in his death experiencing a horrible death. And it's not just that moment where he cried, you know, it is finished. It's, it's the whole journey to that cross where he's experiencing the agony which culminated by his death on that cross. There is agony. There's a horrible experience that he has to go through and, and the things that he's suffering in his humanity are huge. So as difficult and as painful as it would be in his humanity, even Jesus would have to wrestle to present, uh, wrestle the present, I should say, and future agony into the care of the sovereign plan of the Father. Let me say that again. Even Jesus would have to wrestle the present and future agony into the care of the sovereign plan of the Father. That's why in verse 27 when it says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? Absolutely not. He's not. He's, he's, he's fighting his way because these are feelings, these are struggles that he's having, and yet he is battling through that and rejoicing over the fact that he could never and he will never give up the plan. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? Absolutely not. Never. So it was a timely death, a fruitful death, a horrible death, but it was also a purposeful death. A purposeful death. And the emphasis here is on the expression, glorify your name. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour, Father, glorify your name. So he, he's wrestling himself now to this place where he says, but for this purpose. So Jesus was emphasizing the fact that in this hour, the Father's name or his reputation was the priority. What he felt was not as important. Significant, identifying, not as important. Have you ever felt a certain way but had to fight through your feelings because God's way was important? His reputation was more important? And you didn't feel maybe like forgiving that person? Or you didn't feel like calling that person and trying to restore a relationship or to grant forgiveness, but you knew that God's name his reputation was more important, so even though maybe at that point in time I didn't feel like it, I'm going to barrel ahead with his grace and his strength to do what is right because I want to glorify him. I want his name and his reputation to be honored at that point in time. That's what Jesus is struggling with here. He would not abandon the cross because of the suffering and agony it would bring. and We know that it would bring extreme suffering. It was the cup that Jesus would have to endure. Matthew 26, verse 39 says this, and going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. You see this, this tension here of, this is, this is what I'm going through, and yet your will is most important. Your will is most important. But his faithfulness to God's purpose was to defend the Father's reputation, to justify 
and bring honor to his reputation and character. So here Jesus affirms what he has already told his disciples in teaching them, what we call the Lord's Prayer, but it's really the disciples' prayer. In there it says, our Father who art in heaven, what's the next expression? Hallowed be your what? God's reputation, his name. And here, though, he says, Father, glorify your name. Now, the emphasis here is, but for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Now, certainly, we bring glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. And Scripture talks about him being one that receives glory. But Jesus here, speaking to the Father, is saying, he's deflecting it and saying, you are the one. It's, it's your will. That's how we see the plan unfolding. It is something that the Father is maintaining. Jesus is the sacrifice. And so he has humbled himself in this, this triune relationship to be submissive to the Father. And so he's saying, it's your will. It's your will. It's your will. It was a horrible death, but it was also a purposeful death. It's all about the will of the Father. And how does the Father honor and glorify his name? The ultimate answer here is by sending Jesus, the Messiah, to the cross. Bruce Milne says, says it this way. God wrestles with God, right? God, Jesus, wrestles with God, the Father, on the brink of Golgotha. The gospel may be simple, but it is not superficial. It may be free, but it is not cheap. Now, what John wants us to see here is that what we are challenged to believe and the evidence that is on display is no small thing. It is activity, it is a sacrifice, it is a passion that is rooted in eternity past with the divine hand of purpose in it driving forward to a cross that would provide for mankind all those that would believe in him salvation and as a result of that would give life and life abundant. It's no small thing. The gospel is not some quick thing, oh, I'm just going to say some prayer, boom, there it is, I got that, go on your merry way. It is a life-changing experience. And the reason it's life-changing is because God is sovereign, seated on his throne, and he is the one that brings life. It's not just some decision I make, boom, there it is, now let's go to a baseball game. This changes your whole world. Changes your loves, changes your passions, changes how you do life, because you have a new master. And he, this master, was the one that went to the cross and hung there in your place. We must not take the gospel lightly. We must not take our conversion lightly. Even the testimony worksheets that we were talking about is just a great opportunity for you to reflect on what actually took place in your life and where do you stand right now and how can you articulate that as best you can now. Why? Because the glory is not, hey, look what happened to me. The glory is, here's what Jesus did in my life and what he is doing now. Not, well, I did this, and I did this, and I prayed this, and I went this, and I did that, and now I'm following Jesus. No, he did this, and he's doing this, and he accomplished this, and now I continue with a sovereign God who continues to tell me what to do. And I'm still trying to figure out how to be obedient to him, but he's given me the Holy Spirit his word so I can figure that out. So the hour of Jesus' glorification has come, and he wants to bring glory to the Father's name, and a voice comes from heaven to confirm that the Father has indeed glorified 
his name. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again, is what the voice says. There are two other times in the Gospels where a voice comes from heaven. The first one is at Jesus' baptism, where we hear these words, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Then we have at Jesus' transfiguration, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. He adds, listen to him. And then, here. This is the one that most people don't know about. This is kind of like nestled in John chapter 12, maybe a passage you wouldn't normally go to. But here, a voice is coming down from heaven to confirm what Jesus has just been saying or what John has just been revealing. He's confirming the events. He's confirming who Jesus is. And he's confirming the fact, hear this, that Jesus' death is not a tragedy, but it is a triumph. Now, we celebrate Easter as a day of triumph, don't we? You know, when Jesus went to the cross, that's, you know, Good Friday, and that's the mournful time we think about his death, and we're like, celebrate on Sunday when he rose from the tomb, but hear this, it was his death that crushed the devil. It was his death that wiped away sin. It was his death that was the mechanism that accomplished the purposes of God. The resurrection was that proof that that death was significant because it was God dying who now is alive. Okay, A kind of death, a purposeful death. So the focus here is on his death and not his resurrection. Not everyone will hear the message, and not everyone will understand. That's why we have in verse 29, the sound of the voice, the crowd that stood there and heard it, said it, um, said that it had, been, had thundered, and others said an angel had spoken to him. Well, the voice comes. It speaks. But not everyone hears. Not everyone understands. Some people just heard thunderstorms. Some thought they heard angels. That which is clear and articulate to Jesus is only noise in the ears of those who are not in tune with the Father. That which is clear and articulate to we who are God's children is not clear and articulate to those who do not believe. And it's a reminder that our ability to hear is a gift that God has given us by virtue of the ministry and the activity of the Holy Spirit in our life. It's not just a matter of hearing words, but it's hearing the significance of those words in a spiritual dynamic so that they are impressing our spirit and we are in turn wrestling with those truths and being conformed because we're being drawn by God to his image to salvation. There is this, this sound of a voice, but to those who could not or did not believe, it was just thunder, it was just an angel. And here, blindness is accompanied with deafness, inability to hear God. But now we move on to what Jesus says. The significance of 
the voice. What is the significance here? And, and uh, again, Bruce Milne says this thing very, very well. What we have here in these three verses is an exposition of the cross. And we just want to make sure that as we go through these next few verses here, that we recognize what was accomplished, what happened because of the cross, what was significant about it. It's, it's laid out there for us. So as we unpack it, let's read the, the verses, but then we'll kind of go back and just touch on each one. Then Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of the world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what, death, what kind of death he was going to die, talking there about being lifted up. So here's the first thing. His death brings judgment to the world. The focus here is the word judgment. We don't like that word. Our culture doesn't like the word judgment. They don't like the word judge. But this is very, very clear, friends. Jesus came to judge the world by his death. In his death, the world must face the fact that they are sinners. And I didn't mean that by saying by sinners, right? The idea is that sin is the issue. Sin is the problem. And judgment comes because man recognizes that he is sinful. And because of his sin, judgment is coming. But his death also there in judgment also expresses the deep love of the Father, because the love of the Father is bringing a solution to that judgment, is he not? Now turn to the most famous passage in the world, John 3, 16, okay? A few chapters back, we're going to read verses 16 and through verse 18. And just, just take these themes as we read through these verses and just kind of see how they all connect here. We're familiar with John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. That he gave his only son. What kind of gift is he talking about? Just that he sent him to the earth? What's that referring to? It's referring to his death. Right? He gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not what? Perish. You mean if, if I don't believe, what's going to happen to me? I'm going to perish. That's judgment language, right? But have eternal life. Ah, so perish or eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Well, he just said that you're going to perish. <laughs> but he didn't come just to, because he delights in perishing. He didn't come just to condemn. He came with a solution, and it was a solution born out of love. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but, that in, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. So you're already condemned. So the judgment of Jesus is not saying, well, looking at everything there, I think what we'll say is, okay, you know, no presents for you this year like Santa Claus, right? You've been a bad girl, bad boy. No, you're already condemned. And judgment is just reinforcing that. The good news is, you don't have to stay in that position because the gospel can take you out of there. What Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross then judges the world. It exposes their sin, but it also expresses the love of the Father. In verse 18 here, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son 
of God. So the, the, the hinge here is Jesus was sent as a gift, but you must believe. If you don't believe, you'll perish. If you do believe, you're not condemned. You'll have eternal life. So his death brings judgment. Secondly, as we read through this verse back in uh, chapter 12, now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. The ruler of this world, who might that be talking about? All right, comes under a lot of different titles, right? The, um, the accuser, Satan, the devil, the evil one, um, the ruler of this world, right? Um, this event on Golgotha is to the casual onlooker an example of the utter failure of Jesus. Now see, we, 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 know, we know the story, so we're kind of tainted and biased in our understanding. But if you came to this afresh, you didn't see this at all, you would say, here comes this one who's uh, another one of these messiahs hoping to you know, regain position and power in Jerusalem for his people, and here he is on the cross, another one failed. But what is true is not that Satan is victorious, but what Satan thought would be victorious is actually God's divine plan of crushing him and casting him out and accomplishing his purpose. Satan thinks he's done the one thing that is necessary, the, the one thing that he's done is exactly what the Father wanted to take place because through that, man's sin has been paid for. So, but it is in fact an utter defeat for Satan. In the cross, he is driven out because Jesus followed the will of his Father in perfect obedience. In his death, Jesus smashes the chains of guilt and condemnation with which the evil one has bound the children of Adam since the fall. So we have, we have these, these realities that are taking place that Jesus dying on the cross has rippling effects and accomplishes many things that Satan could not even comprehend. He just thought he was getting rid of them. The plans of the ruler of this world are thoroughly dashed with ultimate death, Jesus' death. Now the result of, is that Satan is cast out. I'm not going to say thrown down. Revelation chapter 12, verse 12 talks about that ruler being thrown down. Martin Luther, in his probably most famous hymn, uh, a mighty fortress is of God, in one of his stanzas there says this, and, th and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo do us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him, his rage can endure, emphasis, why? For his doom is what? Sure. One little world, word shall fell him. One word, it is finished. One statement. One movement by the hand of the Father changes everything. But it was a plan that was set forth before the creation of the world. The ruler of this world, now Revelation 11, verse 15, is no longer the ruler of the world it says this, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord 
and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So even the fact that Satan is identified as the ruler of this world, he's the ruler of this world simply because he's been given freedom by a sovereign God. And when Jesus Christ comes and he dies on that cross, he crushes that realm and that kingdom now is brought into a place where, where Jesus is now sitting on his throne. So this, this, these kingdoms have, have shifted and that relationship and that position is no longer there. He's still out there accomplishing his limited purposes, but Jesus is sitting on a throne high and lifted up. And he is not thwarted by any of the activity that's taking place on this earth. The third thing here is um, that his death will exalt Jesus as Messiah. Here's the idea of being lifted up. Now, interestingly enough, when we read in Isaiah chapter 53, same expression. He's talking about, you know, this sacrifice, all these things are going to happen to him. He will be exalted. He'll be lifted up. So there's, there's actually two meanings. There's a double meaning here in this expression, being lifted up. It first reverse, refers to Jesus being crucified. He's lifted up for crucifixion. He's lifted up onto a cross. But it's also talking here about Jesus being exalted and honored through crucifixion. So the cross is, in a sense, his throne. The cross is um, his coronation. Him being on the cross is his coronation. He reigns from that tree. When we see Jesus hanging on that tree, yes, he is suffering, but he is also conquering he is dying, he's accomplishing, he's ruling. It's absolutely incredible to, to comprehend. And then we have the fact that his death will draw all men to himself, all men to the Messiah. So here we see the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, high and lifted up on the cross with his arms stretched out to embrace the world. He, his love goes beyond the Jews of the world. It goes to the Samaritans as we studied that passage, chapter 4 verse 42. In that passage it talks there and they're identifying the Messiah as the Savior of the world. Jesus talked about other sheep I have that are not of this fold. This fold being of, uh, of Judaism. There's others outside of that that are part of God's fold. He's responding here to the Greeks who are not Jews who are seeking him out. As the Pharisees said prophetically, in, 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 you know, just a, a few verses earlier, verse 19, the whole world has gone after him. So here we have him, high and lifted up, and he is there on display, and he is drawing people to himself. It's an incredible picture. He will gather all men who believe from all nations to himself. But here's the point. First, the grain of wheat must fall to the ground and die before it can bear fruit. Death precedes life. Death is necessary for there to be fruit. Now friends, the Bible is not a fairy tale. It doesn't end by saying, and everyone lived happily ever after. The Bible does end. And the end picture is that those who believe have life and have it abundantly. Those who do not, those who reject, do not live life happily ever after at all. They perish 
They suffer for their sins because they have rejected Jesus. They've rejected the Messiah. So what we've seen so far is that Jesus is glorified in his death. We've seen that Jesus uh, in his death is significant because he will judge the world of sin. He'll cast out the ruler of this world. He'll exalt Jesus as the Messiah. He is drawing believing man to himself. And, and, and this, this evidence demands some kind of response. John is not just putting this in here to say, well, this is, this is what Jesus said. Isn't that nice? Let's move on. No, he's putting it in there because he has an argument. He wants those who are reading to look at the evidence. And maybe in this particular passage, the Greeks who are reading this, those who are Gentiles, those who are not Jews, also to read this and say, well, wait, what is he saying to this group of people? How should I respond? How do they respond? Look at verse 34. So the crowd answered him. And we're not told if this is the Greeks, this is the crowd, which typically is talking about everyone who is there, made up primarily of Jews, but they say this. We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever, that the Messiah remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? Now, they understand that the Son of Man and the Christ are talking about the same person. But here's the problem. It's not that they hadn't necessarily listened to what Jesus is saying. They are wrestling with a theological position that they hold to firmly. And the theological position they hold to firmly is this. They don't believe that the Messiah, let's talk about Jews in particular, they don't believe that their Messiah is a Messiah who can suffer. If you talk to someone who's a Jew, who is a Jew that studies the Word of God, that practices you know, the, what's, what's in the Word of God, they'll come to the passages in Isaiah that talk about the suffering servant, chapter 40 and following, which culminate with chapter 53, and they will say, none of that refers to the Messiah, that all is a reference to, in particular, verse uh, chapter 53, is referring to Israel. This is a picture of Israel suffering. This is a picture of what they are going through. Because they cannot comprehend a Messiah dying, suffering. Their Messiah isn't coming to suffer. Their Messiah is coming to do what? To rule. And what Jesus is saying is, no, the plan of the Godhead is that the Messiah must what? Die. That death is necessary for there to be fruit. So we could say that their response might be a little bit of blindness. It might seem clueless at first, but what's, what's rooted in this, this idea is just a, a hard obstacle before them to comprehend that the Messiah must die because they have a completely different view of what, of what that Messiah looks like. So friends, hear this. This is a good question. And, and it's important for us as we talk with others that may not be followers of Jesus Christ to recognize some of the questions that they have because those questions are ingrained in maybe theological positions or, or cultural positions that they actually hold to. How, how could a Messiah die for a Jew? That's a huge question. But Jesus has laid it all out. He's explained why. So you might be, you know, you might be talking with someone who's an atheist, 
someone maybe from you know a Mormon or whatever, and they, they're going to have questions that come out of, of their understanding of what they've kind of been, been taught, and, and Jesus and the Word of God has an answer for them, but, but be careful not just to kind of slap down that answer as it's unimportant. It is important, but there is a solution that is found in the gospel. That's the point. And here we have the answer given to counter this question, right? And Jesus has already given it, but they're still wrestling with it. Now, we've seen the hour of glorification, the voice of confirmation, which takes us now to the light of transformation, meaning we have this evidence. And these last two points really have been evidence upon evidence upon evidence. Now, the question is, what are we going to do with that? And what is Jesus saying to these people who are part of this crowd who have these questions? What are they going to do with all his explanations of their questions? So Jesus, having explained his death, stresses the importance of belief. Verse 35, so Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. So since they are walking in darkness, they are blind. They have no clue about where they are going. But they are fortunate because they have the light. I mean, he's speaking to them. He is the light, right? He's saying the, the light's here just for a little bit. And he knows just in a few days he's going to be hanging on a cross. I'm here for a little bit. In other words, you have an opportunity. I'm here for a little while. And you, because of that, have an opportunity to benefit from my presence. Now, Jesus has said, verse 31, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of the world be cast out. Now, these things are happening now in my death. This is the result. There is an urgency here. The light is present. The light is shining. The light is on display. You have him here. You're talking to him. How will you respond? And friends, we should be paying attention also. If you've been a part of our times together, going through the Gospel of John, you have been given evidence upon evidence upon evidence to show who Jesus is. And the goal there is not simply to give you intellectual knowledge. It is to reinforce that what Jesus says about who he is, is true. John just gives it over and over and over. And over. But what are you going to do with that? How are you going to respond? Are you examining the evidence? And as a result, are you allowing it to fashion in you a desire and a hunger and a need and a, a, a total abandoning to believe in who he is? Have you taken advantage of this opportunity? He is there to be grasped. He's there to be believed. Do you sense him drawing you to himself? Do you feel the grip of conviction that squeezes your heart saying, now, turn to him now, believe now? Now, friends, I, I remember when I was um, 16, and I, I grew up in a Christian home, and I heard the gospel many times, but there was something about that particular moment when I was standing, or I was actually sitting in that, high school chapel and the, the youth pastor at that point in time was speaking and, and there was something that was different about that. It was just like, it was just me and him and really it wasn't him. It was, it was God just kind of directing to me. It's like, I knew, I knew he was poking at me. 
You know what it's like when someone's poking you on the chest? Poke, 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 poke. And there have been other times when, when I, I knew that God was, was, was speaking to me, but I, I had brushed him aside, I'd pushed him away. But this time it was like, you know, all, all the planets were aligning in my life, so to speak, where it's just like, this, I, I, this is what I need to do. And I, and I, I just, I, I had to deal with it. It wasn't something like, well, I'll deal with it. I had, I was compelled to. And there was a conviction going on there. There was a, there was a, 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 you know, a heart squeezing that was taking place. And, and guys, I just, I just want to plead with you. If, if, if that is at work right now, if God is squeezing you with his truth and with his evidence and with his appeal and with the fact that he's saying, listen, here is the evidence, here is the light, what will you do with it? I plead with you, don't, don't walk away and just say, maybe another time. I plead with you, turn to him and believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. A little walk in the light. You still have an opportunity there to believe. Look at verse 36. If you don't, you'll be overtaken by your darkness. Verse 36, while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of the light. And this is where transformation comes into this heading. The light of transformation. It is the light that brings transformation. He is the one who brings ultimately this transformation, this change, that you may become sons of light. We are transformed, we are changed. We have life. We become sons of light. The son of man has come at the appropriate hour so that we who believe can become sons of light. Son of man, sons of light. Son of man is introduced. He dies. As a result, we can become the sons of light. Now, we read the following here. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Just as at times before, Jesus is ever in control. There's, there's no one chasing him down right now to arrest him. Maybe there are people asking more questions. I don't know. But we're told here that Jesus is in complete and total control, and he departs and hides himself from them. Now, don't get the idea, you know, he's hiding behind a barrel, like pumping his head up and that kind of stuff. He's just, he's moving somewhere out of the, out of the area to do what he needs to do as the Son of God goes to a cross. He is always and totally in control. And friends, we, we see that with how he has interacted with those who are his, his opposers and his enemies but we must also maintain that understanding as he progresses now through the Passion Week. Because every step of the way, what, what appears to be a victory, what appears to be some way that they have actually caught him is actually, in fact, a means by which Jesus is accomplishing his purposes. So in other words, under the betraying kiss of Judas, guess what? Jesus is in complete control. Under the arresting hands of the Sanhedrin, under the, the washed hands of Pilate, under the screaming voices of the crowd saying, crucify him, crucify him, under the scourging whips of the soldiers, under the mocking comments of those who are going by the cross, under the weeping cries of a mother, he is completely in control. It wasn't like when he was arrested, oh, what are we going to do? No, the disciples are wondering that. But the God of the universe is doing what he set out to do.
Now, friends, every moment, under every situation, Jesus is, is both human in his feeling, in his depths, his pain, his suffering. He is also God doing the will of his Father. We see both of those things fleshed out for us in this passage. Now, as we bring this to a close, a couple of things I want us to think about. Number one, we see a picture of life that comes through death. This is where we go back to the first part where we, we see this planting, right? We see Jesus as this grain of wheat. He is this, this grain that is planted. He must die in order that life takes place. Then we see this, this raising. He is lifted up. Yes, he's lifted up on a cross, but he's also lifted up honoring uh, who he is, but also honoring the Father. So there's this, this, this burying, this planting, there's this raising up, and then there's this shining. He's, he's on this cross. His, his glory is on display in his suffering, accomplishing what he accomplished there on the cross in dying for the sin of mankind. He is there shining, giving the glory of the Father to mankind through his death. Now just let that picture settle. The significance of the cross, the significance of his death is for you. And he died to give you life. You are one fruit of many fruit that could only be accomplished through one death. Secondly, that flows out of it. We also have a promise here of life and death. We are called here. We are, if we are believers, we are identified here as sons of light. And let's just go back through this passage and identify some statements here that describe then what is it that happens to a son of light? What is it that the, the son of light benefits from? We bear much fruit. If you're a child of God, you are bearing fruit. If you're a son of God, if you're a child of God, if you are a believer, that is what you're doing. Secondly, you're keeping your life for eternity. You are looking for eternity, and you have a confidence about eternity because you're one of his children. Third thing, you're honoring the Father. The Son of Light will honor the Father. This is what happens. If you are a servant, if you're serving him, his eye will honor you. This is what you do if you're a son of light. You are one who's been created who's been saved so that you can honor the Father with your life. You will hear the voice of God. It won't sound like thunder. It won't sound like angels. It will sound like God. When you read his word, you will read it with the power of the Holy Spirit working through that word, pressing things into your heart, making things uh, aware into your, your, your being so that you can comprehend the spiritual truths that are there. It won't just sound like gobbledygook. It will sound crisp and clear. And certainly there's areas where we'll grow and we'll struggle, but we have the confidence because we are sons of light that he is speaking to us and that we can hear him. And we will have understanding. We'll have comprehension. Friends, these are wonderful, blessed truths that we have, all a result of the cross and what Jesus Christ has done. We become the sons of light. Now, friends, there's a lot more in this passage that, that we can look at. You know, he who gives his life or he who loves his own life will lose it, right? I mean, just think about that whole statement, the law of Christ. What does it mean to follow Christ? 
Have you come to the place where you're saying, God, this is not about me. It's not about what I want. Oh, you've given me passions, you've given me desires, you've given me skills, you've given me likes, but all those are under your care. So God, use them as you will for your glory, for your name, for your purpose. This is how you've created me. Now, Lord, this is yours. I am your child. I am your servant. I am blessed because of you. Now, Lord, take me and use me and accomplish your will through me. Is that our response? Let's pray that that would be our response. Lord, we thank you for your death. Lord, your death is pregnant with meaning so full of truth that we've only just started to mine. And Lord, in this passage where John reveals this encounter with the Greeks, Lord, I just, Lord, I, I am just aware that you want us to get a sense of the importance of your death on the cross. And not to take it lightly, and not just to see it as a one-time event that as kind of a, a one-time experience, but Lord, that it, it impacts everything. And Lord, that not only were you sovereign in your son's death, but you were also sovereign in the preparation for that death. You're sovereign in what happens after that death. You're sovereign in our lives, and you're sovereign in what is yet to take place. Help us, Lord, to hold on to the fact that it's only through death that life can only, that can truly come, Lord, that we must die to ourselves, that we must be in Jesus Christ, dying to self daily so that you can bear fruit in our lives daily. Help us, Lord, now to, to take all we've looked at today, to be honest with your Holy Spirit. Lord, if there's someone here who's wrestling, who feels the squeeze, Lord, of, of conviction on their heart, Lord, I, I just plead that they would come humbly before you, saying, Lord, my life is yours. Grant me forgiveness because of what you've done for me on the cross. Oh, Lord, what a, what a blessed thing that would be. We ask this now, Lord, in your precious name.